You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Good morning. If we have not yet met, my name is Lee, and I have the privilege of serving here at Ascend as the Director of Student Ministry. And so that means I get to spend my days with 6th through 12th graders, and I love that. It's a passion of mine. It was a very influential time in my life, and I love the opportunity to serve the families that we have here in the community by serving those 6th through 12th graders and their families. And so as Pastor Jeff and his family are away, he's given me the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning, and I have the ability to choose anything I wanted. Um, and so that's kind of one of those things that's great. You know, as Jeff walks through Revelation, you know where we're going to be at the next time he's up here? It's the next verse in Revelation. And so I had the opportunity to pick something. And so I decided that we would contemplate a holiday that is taking place tomorrow. That holiday is Reformation Day. So 505 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle of Wittenberg, outlining what he saw as the injustices of the church of his time. And that way of thinking is one that we benefit from today as he brought the people back to what he saw, the scriptures said, the church was to be like. And so as we contemplate that this morning, I want us to focus in on one of the central teachings that he had in that time. And that's the concept of the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer is the thought that every Christian has access to the priestly status of Jesus through his finished work on the cross. Every believer is then empowered to be a priest for him. It eliminated the need for this special status of people that lorded over the scriptures for those people, but instead empowered them to daily live and daily understand what God's word is meaning in talking and speaking to them. And while I believe it to be a very empowering and liberating thought, it's also a very challenging thing that I hope we can look at this morning. And so I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be focusing in on verses 4 through 6 this morning. As you turn there to 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll let you know that the big idea of the text that we are going to look at today is that because of Jesus' final sacrifice, every true believer in him has received a new spiritual standing. Because of Jesus' final sacrifice, every true believer in him has received a new spiritual standing. We see that from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, which reads, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When we walk through this passage today, we're going to see that there are three actions that are taking place in the believer's life because of what Jesus has done. And so the first of these is that in Christ, believers are now the house of God. And our passage explains that in terms of a metaphor that may be foreign to us. 
I like to think back to a time in my life. Uh, I was a kid uh, not too many years ago. Now it seems like a long time ago. Uh, but I enjoyed watching television like most kids, right? Um, and this was back in the day where sometimes you had to physically get up and like change the television to get to things. So you watched commercials, right? Um, I don't know if kids know what commercials are these days. Uh, they're not all in the streaming things. But uh, Chevy Trucks had a commercial that they ran the same slogan for about 15 years. Chevy Trucks are like a rock, right? As a kid, that was just bewildering to me. Why would I want my truck to be like a rock? Rocks don't move. They're not exciting. They sink in water. They're not flashy. They're not like the things that I would think I would want my car to be like as a kid. But I was completely missing the point of what Chevy was trying to say their car was like. So if I was a working class man who needed a hard-working truck that was American-made, it was strong, it was going to carry the weight of everything that was there, and at the end of the day still be standing, I would want a Chevy truck like a rock like they were talking about. But the metaphor was lost on me because I didn't understand it. And so as we look at our passage today, I think, and even as I started to prepare, I almost just wanted to jump over the first part and really get into what does this practically mean for me? But first, we have to understand the whole concept of what Peter is building on here as he talks about the spiritual house of God being built upon this stone. You know, it's crazy to think about a living thing being called a stone. When we walk through the scriptures, we know that, that God is our rock. We see him as a strong foundation. We see this image over and over again. But there's also this image of the stone that is throughout the scriptures. The stone is seen as a very important, as a pivotal and a polarizing figure. And in order for us to really understand everything that's there, I want us this morning to take the time to walk through what the scriptures say about the stone. We're not going to be able to see everything it says, but I believe we're going to see enough to see why Peter has chosen this to be the image he uses to challenge us today. Our journey is going to be very quick, so I'd encourage you as you're doing this, just maybe write down the passages so you can go back and look at them later. We won't have time and I won't give you time to turn to all of them, read them all in their entirety. But as we walk through them, I want you to see how the entirety of scripture speaks of this stone. We pick up at a curious place in Genesis chapter 28 with a man named Jacob. In Genesis chapter 28, it's the Sunday school story of Jacob's ladder, right? Him having this dream of angels ascending and descending on these things. When he wakes up from that dream, we see something very curious happened. It says Genesis 28, 18 through 22. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. It's kind of crazy to think about what he's doing here, right? He has this vision and he takes a stone and the God of the universe who created everything, he says, you're going to live in this stone that I was using as a pillow that I've now poured oil over. That's going to be your house, right? 
It's kind of almost like sacrilegious when you think about it, right? The God of the universe is going to live in this little stone. But let's remember who's saying these words. This is Jacob. He's the deceiver. He just stole his brother's birthright, and now he's kind of fleeing from that. God is working with this sinful man, but working with him on how he desires to dwell again amidst his people. He desires to be back where they were in the garden, where he walked in community with them, where he lived in their presence. But the people are not ready for this. Jacob was not ready for this. Jacob in this thing, he's making vows. He's not even really claiming God at this point. He's saying, if you will do all of this stuff for me, I'll probably follow you. I'll probably do some things for you too. I'll give you a tenth of what I have. I'll, I'll do these things for you if, if you'll do this for me. He's working with a sinful person to once again try to dwell in the presence of man. But we see that there's a progression in Jacob. Jacob, as we see him working through his situation, does get reunited with his brother. And once again, sets up a stone to be the dwelling place of God. Genesis chapter 33 displays this for us. Verses 18 through 21, as he's restored to a right relationship with his brother Esau, he sets up another stone that's El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. At that point, he is now claiming the God who he had said, if you'll do these things, I will be a person who is worshiping you. He now claims him at that point in the image of God in the desire of God to dwell with his people continues to grow through this stone. But we know because of the sinfulness of man, God could not yet dwell in their midst. As we walk through the book of Exodus, we see that God sets out his desire to be once again with the people. But if they're to be revealed to his entire glory, it would be too much for them. So he sets up the priests to do and to minister in the tabernacle that will be his holy presence. At the end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle is completed, we see the glory of the Lord falls down on the temple and he once again dwells in the midst of his people. But we know that that temple is not yet where it should be in terms of a great grand temple for the God of the universe. David saw that when he said, why is it that I live in a house of stones that's marvelous and my God dwells in a tent? But because of the sin of David, he was unable to build the temple he desired to. That was passed to his son Solomon, who when he builds the marvelous temple for the God of the universe, when God accepts the sacrifices and moves into that temple, 2 Chronicles 7 records how his presence falls upon that place. And God once again dwells with his people. But only through limited access, only through the high priest being able to go through and commune with him. He's back on earth with his people, but not in the way he was desiring or in the way in which man desires. But we know the sin of Israel leads us to the point where God departs that temple. Ezekiel 10 displays how Ichabod, the glory, has departed from that place, never to return again to the house of stone because the people would not follow. But after they go and are conquered by their enemies, they return to the land and say, we need to build this temple back for our God that he can once again come into our midst and bless us. 
But they build a house of stone, but God doesn't move back in. They dedicate it, they pray, they offer sacrifices, but God does not return to that place. Instead, they're left with a shadow and a shell of what used to be. In fact, when the nation of Israel dedicates that temple, the older people who had seen the temple to the temple in its miraculous place before, they actually cried. They cried and you couldn't tell what was louder, the cries of these old people or the cheers of the young people as it was being established. But they knew that the glory of that building was not what it had once been. And it's in this context that we see a curious prophecy made. The book of Haggai records it in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, where it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all these nations will come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. But how could that be true? Did the nation of Israel get peace? Was the glory of that building greater than the glory of the ones before? It wasn't. So how can this promise be true? How is it that the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be fulfilled if this is the state and this is the state of that temple? It's within this context that we see the rest of scripture start to lay out that the stones of the temple are now brought back to a singular stone who is a person. Isaiah chapter 8 records, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the ways of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling for both the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall snared and be taken." Isaiah 28 continues to develop it as it says there, Therefore the Lord God says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. The one who believes in him will not be put to haste. The metaphor of the prophecy of the stone is written throughout the Old Testament and continues into the New Testament. It's in the law, it's in the writings, it's in the prophets. Psalm 118.22 is the one that Peter has chosen to draw upon in our passage, where it writes that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And as we see that the law, the writings, and the prophets, and the New Testament write on this, they write upon the way in which God continues to desire to dwell with his people. He desires to be Emmanuel, God with us. And that comes in the form of his son. We see Matthew 21 displays this to us in the parable of the tenants. 
It's there in the context of the nation of Israel forsaking their God and choosing to follow other things, not responding to the way in which he's revealing himself to them, nor responding to the way in which Jesus is physically ministering in their midst, that he says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of his vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the house comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let others come to the vineyard and work it, who will give them the fruits in their season. Then Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, the stone, the dwelling place of God, is a singular person at this point. One who is tested, one who is without blemish, one who is sure and a strong foundation, one that God would choose to be the cornerstone that he would build his temple upon. But this temple would not be like the old one. It would be a living temple. Not a temple of physical stones, but a temple of spiritual stones. But our passage reminds us that though, that though God desires to do this, people do not always respond the way he has chosen. The opening verse of 1 Peter tells us that this was written to the chosen elect of the dispersion or the disciples that have been spread throughout the known world. That same word there for chosen is the same word that he uses to speak of this stone. Just as God had chosen the stone of Jesus to be the one he builds from, he has chosen the church to be the spiritual stones that together build the temple that he desires to use. But this stone is a very polarizing individual. We see that throughout the times it's written. I call this our pineapple pizza moment. I've elicited a response from the front row on that. And I'm sure all of you are thinking that in terms of one way or another, really. It's one of those things where you either love it or you hate it. There's very few people that are going to ride the fence on pineapple pizza. You either see it as something delightful or a travesty. Right? It's one of those things that no matter what I say, you're not going to change your opinion on it. You either like pineapple on pizza or you don't. And while we don't have time to walk through the reason that pineapple is acceptable on pizza, what we do have time to see is the way in which Jesus Christ has a right understanding of the stone and a calling of you to have that understanding as well. Because those who put their faith in him will not be put to shame. Though they are crushed, they will be rebuilt by him by humbly acknowledging who he is. 
by understanding that the weight of his sacrifice was meant to restore them rather than to bring them to shame. But though he desires to dwell with us, we have to desire to dwell with him. We know that throughout the scriptures, many people choose not to respond that way. They choose not to desire to commune with the Lord. They choose instead their own ways. They choose instead their own pleasures. They choose instead a life apart from God. But for those who desire to be rebuilt, to be the dwelling place of God, to be a part of the redemption that comes through the cross, for those individuals to be built back up into the house of God is the way in which he desires to indwell the nations and to reveal his glory. When we see him doing that, we see that we are a crucial part of what the gospel desires to do. Peter says here, you are being built up as living stones to be the spiritual house of God, the temple of the gods of the universe, his dwelling place among his created man. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, chapter 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He also says again in 1 Corinthians 16, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As individual stones being built upon the cornerstone of Jesus, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and able to represent him and his glory to others. We're being built together with the many stones of the other believers to be the great temple of our living Savior. The same glory and the same God that dwelt in the tabernacle and dwelt in the temple now dwells within us. Greg Harris says it this way, by God's own design, he once placed his glory inside a lowly tent in the Old Testament times. By God's marvelous grace, he still chooses to place his glory today within other earthly tents, namely our own physical bodies. If you're interested in walking more through the stone and many other passages we weren't even able to look at this morning, he has an excellent book, The Stone and the Glory, that traces that metaphor through scripture. And in doing so, displays how God desires to dwell with man. How he desires his glory to be present with them. But if we're honest, that can be a very overwhelming thought. If God's, present is, if God's glory and presence is within me, why is my life like it is? Why do I sin? Why are there hardships? Why are these other things that are present? We have to understand that the God who promised to provide to Abraham, who promised to provide his son as a sacrifice, continues to desire to provide for us. The tenses in our passage help us to see that as they're continually drawing us back to the focus that he has. Wayne Grudem says it this way, as you keep coming to Christ in worship, 
in prayer and praise, you're continually being built into his spiritual house. Spiritual temple, sorry. A place in which God more and more fully dwells. So as you continue to abide in Christ, he continues to build you up into the house upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. We know that that stone is the most important one, the one through which all of us draw our bearings. And as we build upon him, his sacrifice, the way in which he's revealed himself to us, and the way in which he uses us in our lives, we build and minister on his behalf. Because as we do this, Peter then goes on to say, it's not that just you are being built to be a spiritual house, but believers, because they are in Christ, believers are to be a holy priesthood. This is another image that's probably slightly foreign to us. We don't really think today in terms of us being priests. The majority of the New Testament chooses instead to use the word saints, which is another word that we don't often use. When I was a kid at the Baptist churches that I grew up in, they used the word saints a lot. We spoke a lot of the saints. Now we kind of see priests and saints usually within the context of a Catholic church, those that were in their ministering and those whom they revere in those senses. But the New Testament uses both of those terms to speak of all believers. As we think about priests, we know and we can walk through the Old Testament and see the way in which the sinfulness of man made it necessary for God to give a class of people to go and to help mediate between him and man. For them to be a part of the sacrifices that were needed to allow people to come into the presence of God. Because of the sinfulness of man, God cannot rightly be in presence of them. But as we walk through that, we see that he has provided for that in a different way. Martin Luther reflected on this and decided and saw how many of the churches of his day were in choosing to instead twist the scriptures and lay unneeded burdens upon the people. What he argued as he viewed this passage alongside the greater teachings of scriptures was that when God allowed his son to die on the cross for our sins, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, signifying that his access was now released to all people. They no longer needed someone to mediate that. They no longer needed someone to act on behalf of sinful man because Christ had already paid for that. But they practically continued to act that way. The church continued to function as if the most important people were the priests. That was not what God desired. As Luther and others studied the scriptures, they saw that since God is now accessible to all, they are now able to return to their role of being what God had designed them to be. The ones who ministered on his behalf, just as they did in the garden. Luther saw that this chasm continued to expand that made it so that there was a super spiritual elite and this temporal peasant type people. In between that chasm, there was no way to get across because the super spiritual elite had control over all of the knowledge of God, all of the practices of God. He wrote of this, there's no true basic difference between laymen and priests, between the religious and the secular, except for the sake of office and work but not for the sake of their status. They're all of the spiritual estate. All are truly priests, bishops, and popes, but they do not have the same work to do. By this, he didn't mean that we should do away with church leaders. He, in fact, said that they're very important to the church. As we look through the scriptures, we see the way in which church leaders are challenged to do things that the majority of the rest of the believers are challenged to do as well. 
The one unique thing that's there is those who are called to be elders or pastors must have the ability to teach and rightly teach God's word. But all of the rest of the commands that are given to them are given to believers as well. There is no distinction between what is expected of a believer and what is expected of a church leader. There's no status difference between the two. They both are on the same standing, not because of anything they've done, but solely because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And because of that, they are all equally empowered to do God's work, to be his priest. So why had there become a distinction? What took place to give it an opportunity to be proliferated in their time? Part of this, we can attribute to the lack of access of God's word for the common person. Remember in the 1500s, the average person was not able to read or write. They did not have access to God's word in their own language. And if they did, it was very expensive and only the elites would be able to afford that. But some 50 years before Luther, this changed with the invention of the printing press. As people now had access to make copies of Bibles using the mechanical type that was there. Getting Bibles in people's language back to them so that they had access to God as he intended it to be. We look back at the Old Testament, we see that the nation of Israel was to revolve their life around the Lord. As they walked into rooms, as they left them, every part of their life was to remind them of what God was doing. They were supposed to celebrate events and different days of the calendar that were to remind them of the grace of God in the lives of their forefathers. Yet that was not taking place. They instead lived under an opportunity where the Lord's work was done by a few people. They controlled it and they controlled the people who were under it. Luther and the other reformers said, this is not the way the New Testament or even God's word as a whole speaks about how he desires to be present and to be working through people. But I ask you, what about us today? I believe that we often function and practically function under this same misunderstanding that Luther sought to expose. As a kid, I had the privilege of growing up in the church, one that I think has helped me to be the person I am today. If you ask my parents, I was not a very obedient kid. I was always about doing my own thing and not listening to others. I believe that the church helped protect me from many things that I would have done had it not been around me. But one of the ways in which I see that the church had a disservice to me as I was growing up is it failed to tell me really what God wanted me to do. As I went to the church, there were countless lessons, countless opportunities, countless individuals who told me my job was to bring other people to church. My job was to invite my friends to get them to come to church. And when I got them to church, I released them to the professionals who were going to do and fix them. That was the understanding that I had. And as I walked through that, I was decently successful at that but not really actually doing what God had wanted me to do. I'm a talkative person. I can sometimes convince people to do things they don't want to do, like come to church. And as they get there, I thought, I've done it. Gold star for me. God's done with me. I did everything I was supposed to do. But as Luther and others and many other people in my life have taught me, there was much more that God desired from me. There was much more he was wanting to do 
with his servants. And not just me, but all believers. We are called to be what Romans calls the beautiful feet of those bringing the message of the gospel. We're called to be the jars of clay that hold the surpassing value of God and take that to those around us. We're called to be the ambassadors for Christ that boldly proclaim the gospel wherever we are. Do you see it as your call as a believer only to bring people to God or to be the gospel on display for the people God brings to you? There's a big difference there. Are you seeing yourself as an integral part of the ministry of God to the people in your life? Or do you bring people to others to do that ministry? You see, I believe that Christian church in America still struggles with this. I base that belief on the fact that I've read countless books written by American authors that speak to these realities. They tell us that we're to be and to have a crazy love for God. Our calling is a radical calling or that we're to be more than a fan of Jesus. I could go on. There's so many books telling us that what God desires of his people is far different than what the average American church looks like. Perhaps it's because the people have lost their connection to God's word and to his people, to the true church that he desires to be. So as we see that we're the dwelling place of God, equipped to be his priests, we now see that we have to understand that we are those who are empowered to help others access God. That we are given the opportunity to do the work of a priest. To work and to keep whatever God has entrusted to us. And as we learn and grow in our obedience to him, we're able to guide others to him through what Peter calls spiritual sacrifices. You see, in Christ, believers are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Once again, we're at a place where we're like, hey, we don't talk about sacrifices a lot. I do joke with people when they're trying to invite their friends with students. They're like, ah, it's kind of weird to invite somebody. I was like, just tell them we don't do cat sacrifices. They're like, wait, what? Nobody does cat sacrifices. But if you lead with something like that, maybe humor could break the ice, right? But we don't do sacrifices, right? But think about a priest's job. Priest's job was a very bloody, very, very bloody job. Constantly sacrificing things. Constantly doing this work on behalf of others, considering them more than yourself. As the holy priesthood of God, we're called to offer these spiritual sacrifices. But they're not the same as the sacrifices that we think of. Because when Jesus died on the cross as the final sacrifices, there was no more need to atone for our sin. He had completed that. So these spiritual sacrifices that we write about are intrinsically tied to the charge that God gave the original people in the garden, which was to work and to keep what he had given to them. We see that that was what Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden, to guard or to work and to keep what they had been entrusted to. That same terminology is used of the priests who are then called to do that on behalf of God. Numbers 3, 7 through 8 says, They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall keep guard over all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister there in the tabernacle. The spiritual sacrifices that we are called to do and to participate in today 
are seen in our ability to work and to keep what God has entrusted to us. We walk in worship, we work in worship, and we keep in worship as we're found faithful to offering these spiritual sacrifices. Colossians 3.17 says it this way, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This truth goes against the idea that anyone has a more important task than anyone else. The truth is, in the eyes of God, every individual and their ministry is the same. He has called each of us to the same standard of being faithful to working in keeping what is he entrusted to us. The truth is, what that looks like for you looks probably very different than the person sitting next to you. God has given you a different place to work and to keep. Some of you leave work or leave home each day and go to work to a place that God is calling you to guard and to keep. But when you return home, you're to guard and you keep that home as well. Some of you work from home and you're to guard and to keep what you do from there. Some of you are stay-at-home moms who are called to guard and to keep what God has entrusted to you. Whatever it is you do, God is calling you to guard and to keep it. We can look at Romans chapter 12 and see that we do that by renewing our mind, by not conforming to the pattern of this world, by understanding that we've been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. That being called as his priesthood means we are set apart from the world around us. And as we guard and we keep God's entrusted things in the same way that he has given them to us, we're found faithful in offering spiritual sacrifices to God. When we think about the main role of the priests in offering those sacrifices, it's intrinsically tied to this thought of being a pleasing aroma. If we're to read through Leviticus or the other places that speak on what priests are to do, when they offer up sacrifices, the desire is that God would find that sacrifice to be a pleasing aroma. It's one of those things, too, that uh, this is not in my notes, but when I said that, I thought... Man, I hate candle stores. I just don't get it. There's just too much going on in a candle store, right? You walk in and you get hit with like a thousand scents. And I can't smell things very well, but for some reason, it's just overwhelming, right? That aroma is pleasing to some, but it's not to me. Peter wants us to understand that, and Paul expands on that thought as he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, about the aroma of Christ and the victory of Christ that we have, when we think about this in terms of what he does, and it signals to us the importance of what Peter is calling us and the urgency behind us living as the priesthood of God and as his holy people, as we think about the way in which we are offering that pleasing aroma to those around us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You see, in Paul's context, he's walking through a military conquest of the land. And as the people come in, lighting their different things of incense that are displaying the victory that they've come, the people who have just been conquered, they know what's coming. At best, they're going to be enslaved. At worst, they're going to be killed. So as the victors march in, excited about the victory that's taken place, the others smell the agony of defeat. 
That same aroma elicits two different responses. Peter wants us to see that. Paul wanted us to see that because our lives will do that. Our lives will either draw others to Christ or they will draw them into their sinfulness. They will either point them to Christ or they will point them into damnation. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 10 expands upon this. I wish we had time to walk through all that's there, but I do want to read it this morning because it says there, so the honor is for you who believe, but it doesn't let us forget those who don't believe because those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. We are called to live as God's holy priesthood, offering up living, holy sacrifices of our lives, not just for our sake, but for the sake of those around us. Because the prophecy of the stone is true, that whenever people encounter Christ, they will have one of two options. Graciously, many of us had the failing option for many times before we understood what took place and what was needed for our lives to rightly respond to the way in which God revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we are then taken from the crushed state to be built back to be the house of God. And while we might be tempted to separate these three things and say, maybe I should just do one. What's one of these that I can kind of focus in? They're all intrinsically tied to each other. You cannot separate them from one another. Because it's the finished work of Christ upon the cross that creates in him the ability to be the cornerstone. That builds up the house of God. That allows us to participate as his ministering priests and to offer up sacrifices pleasing and acceptable to God. We do that when all that we do is done in worship, when we cultivate and keep and work the gardens that he has placed us in, and when we desire to see his glory filling our lives, filling every place we're at to the point that it's reflected to a lost and dying world around us that brings them to him. Wayne Grudem says it this way, the beauty of this new and living temple made of people should no longer be expensive gold and precious jewels, but the imperishable beauty of holiness and faith in Christians' lives, qualities which much more effectively reflect the glory of God. You see, God never intended his presence, his glory, or his mission to only be for a select few. He desires each true believer to be a disciple-making disciple that sees lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied for the glory of God. It's my prayer that he finds our church to be faithful in doing this. Tomorrow is also another day that will be celebrated by many. And it's a day that I believe is unique. What other day is it socially acceptable for you to walk up and knock on your neighbor's door and ask them for something? What other day is it socially acceptable for them to do the same to you? 
I think of how and what is taking place in terms of your ability to connect with the people that are around you, the people who live in your neighborhood, or the people who are coming to your neighborhood because you pass out the king-size candy bars. Whatever it is, God is bringing people to you. He's bringing you opportunities to reflect the glories of Christ to those around us. And while we may not believe or celebrate what many are celebrating in that, we cannot lose sight of the fact that he's given us an opportunity to act on his behalf and to minister to those around us, to be his people with the gospel, working on his behalf in places of darkness wherever they are, to be ministering to those around us for his kingdom and his glory's sake.